Welcome to the Product Quest podcast. Thank you for joining us on our journey to better understand innovation and product strategy. My name is Jonathan Edwards, and joining me, as always, my co-hosts, Jan Vermouth and Scott Burleson. Our guests today are Daniel Trabucci and Tommaso Buganza. Daniel and Tommaso are both professors at the School of Management at Politecnico di Milano. They are experts in innovation, leadership, organizational change, and project management, and have a special interest in platforms, and have written a book about this topic together called Platform Thinking, which will be the focus of our discussion today. They're both active researchers with many published articles in peer-reviewed journals, and besides their research, they are actively involved in advisory projects with small and multinational organizations. In addition to the book, they founded the Platform Thinking Hub, a community of innovation leaders focusing on platforms, which is part of the Observatory of Digital Innovation of the School of Management at the Politecnico di Milano University. They are both very active and involved in many different initiatives, and we'll not list all of them here. If you want to find out more, you can visit their website, platformthinking.eu. So, Daniel and Tommaso, welcome to the Product Quest podcast. Thank you very much for having us. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Yeah, likewise. Thank you. So, I really en enjoyed the book with a lot of very interesting ideas and concepts and you you formalize these this idea of of platforms and you start the the book by describing what the different kinds of platforms are and could you please tell us what are these people use this word platform but what does it actually mean what are the different kinds of platforms out there we will try to be sharp on this but that was actually the beginning of everything you know, when, when we started uh, writing the book, uh, we didn't really know how to start. And we asked Google for help. ChatGPT wasn't there yet. And uh, we asked Google, just platform, to see what was popping up there. We set up a reference system and we do realize that actually there are an incredible high number of results dealing with the word platform. But what was even more interesting than that uh, is that uh, people always ask, uh, the, the, the suggestion that Google was giving us for the research was actually, what is a platform? What do they mean by platform? So we decided to start a book with this overview of the various definitions that are, that are there. I think laying them out like one after the other might be a bit, you know, confusing for, for, for people just listening. But we created also some some graphics to to make them uh, them simple that you can find in uh, in the book or or in the MOOCs. So we'll try to use some examples. The first one uh, that is very different from all the others, but is actually the very first definition coming from an in, from the innovation management literature on what is a platform is product platforms. Think about Volkswagen cars. You don't think about Volkswagen cars when you think about platforms, probably, but they are the perfect example of a product platform. Cars like, I don't know, the Volkswagen Golf, Volkswagen T-Roc, Audi A3, they actually share the same internal structure. That's what a product platform is. So in the early days, we are talking about the 80s, 
the idea of platform was a basic architecture upon which you can build derivative products. You know, this is the first definition we give there, but it's also the most different from all the others, but the foundation upon which we build platform thinking. This idea of having a basis upon which you build something else. That leads to the second no. category. Yeah, I mean, interesting thing with uh, product platforms is that they, of course, are connected with the idea of innovation. And the idea is to make it the innovation sharper. So you are reducing the time and the cost for making an innovation. I mean, you're actually having a very long project at the beginning to create the platform, but then it's quite easy to create new products on top of it. So there's this strong connection between innovation and product platforms. So at a certain point, uh, something great happened uh, again in the past. And there was a moment in which somebody realized that, that uh, if the platform is owned only by a single company, you can leverage this idea of you know building on top, but it's only you. And you can be the most incredible company in the world, but your innovation power will never be as big as the innovation power of the industry. So somebody, so in this case, we are talking about uh, you know, console gaming or, or operating systems. Uh, suddenly, they decided to open the platform. So if you think about uh, the basic architecture of a computer, uh, you got you know the chipset, you got the, 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 you got the operating system operating on top of it. Uh, and then this is open for everybody. So you can build on top of it. So you can create your own applications. So at the beginning it was on Windows. Today it's the same for iOS. You can create your own apps and your apps are actually using what is already provided to everybody by the platform company. So in this case, the situation is quite similar, but with two big differences. So you still have layers. So a basic layer upon which you can build, but it's not only you as a company, everybody can do that. And this is, you know, somehow unlocking an incredible innovation power. So you've got an ecosystem of people around you creating value and wonderful applications and, and products on top of what you did. So that effect that you had at the beginning, uh, uh, reducing the cost and the time is now provided to the industry. So in this case, we talk about uh, innovation platforms uh, or industry-wide platforms. But of course, it it's, seems to be a little bit you know, counterintuitive. Why should I open uh, my platform to other people? Why should I let other people, you know, taking advantage uh, of that advantage that was mine? So reducing the time and the cost for innovation. And uh, in many cases, what we see is that on the one side, you are, of course, you are enabling somebody else to build value on your platform. But on the other side, you know that in order to use that value, the final customer will have to buy the app and the platform. So in a certain way, you are creating a different kind of economy in which uh, in order to have that incredible applications that have been built by somebody else on your platform, the final user has got to buy also your platform. So in a certain way, there is this uh, ecosystem of, of uh, uh, complementors building on your product, on your platform, and they are pushing the sales of your product. So this is a second typology. It's quite similar with a big difference. So it's open to everybody. And this is triggering, uh, you know, different kind of economies. And again, this is called innovation platforms, typically.
So whereas the uh, the first platform the that's based the, so the Volkswagen case, which is the product platform, is really, as I understand it, for reducing the cost of building new products and being able to iterate faster on on cre- on creating new products. This the second type of platform you've just talked about is more about enabling different players and different even companies maybe to come together and build a kind of ecosystem of 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 products is that correct yeah it is exactly correct and and the two effects are on the one side you got much more innovation so you got you know thousands hundreds of thousands of different innovations built on your product some of them will be great some of them will be lame, but you really don't care. So the basic idea is that some of them will be killer applications. And when somebody develops a killer application, people, in order to use them, they would have to buy your platform. So you're in a certain way, you are compensating, you know, giving away part of a value because you let somebody else building on you. And on the other side, you, you compensate it because in order to use it, the final customer must buy your basic platform. Sounds to me, just as a, as, a, as a question to you also, that, I mean, one thing is standardizing something in an industry, right? So that would maybe fit the first kind or go close to something like the first, I don't know, kind of, of platform. But the second one seems to me like involves, I would, I, I'll try to phrase it in a way and then you tell me if that's right, involves a business model change as well. So in the first one, I might sell you the platform and then you build on top of whatever you want. But the second one seems to be like, I kind of, I rent out my platform to you and and do whatever you want on top of it with it. But as as long as I get a share of of your, so it is it's a little bit of a different business model in the second one involved. Is that is that fair to say? Oh yeah, I mean I think you're absolutely right. And probably some of the main changes in the business model is something that we would find in other typologies of platforms. So the innovation platforms are somehow a strange, a strange animal because they are, you know, in between two very different typologies of platforms and they share something with uh, product platforms on one side and, uh, you know, other two-sided platforms that we will introduce in a while on the other side. So they, they put together different elements. Yeah, right. So you're creating a different kind of economy, a different kind of business model. So I will make money again because I sell my product. So think about an iPhone. I still make money because I sell the iPhone as well as Volkswagen is making money because they are selling cars. But it's not only that. And there is this big discussion in these days (laughs) about side loading and so on. So you've got uh, a lot of other people building on your product and they sell their applications and you keep a percentage of those revenues. So now you are actually having two different line of revenues because you sell the product and because you take a percentage of the transactions that you are enabling between your final customer and somebody who's building on your product. And in this way, you've got two lines of revenue. So you're absolutely right. You're changing and incrementing the business model. Yeah, and you know you are kind of externalizing at least part of the innovation activities. Like the value that the iPhone had when it when it came out was cool, was high, but it increased significantly thanks to the work of other people of the complementers that make this object incredibly more valuable in comparison to what it was before. So you are literally asking someone that is not within your company 
to foster innovation for you, leveraging for you and for your customers, leveraging on the technological base that you, that you put there. So yeah, there was, you know, it was happening mainly the big cases when open innovation started as a movement. So the early cases are, are older. The, the Windows computers actually were the first real example, but it's something that became much more common over the last 20 years. And it's really related with this idea of open innovation and asking others to build on top of, of something that you have, sharing somehow the benefit. And so what would be an example of an, an innovation platform that we, I think would, so the iPhone, I think that would be it. iOS um, to be an be iOS, iOS, okay. An operating system, system. micro yeah. windows, that kind of Drive. stuff. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And so then you have a couple more platforms. So what would be the, the, the next, I don't know if we can say next level or the, <laughs> like the different, the next platform. Well, the third one uh, for many years, we can say has been considered the same of innovation platforms. So many cases were somehow in between the two categories. And over the last years, we clearly saw the differences. The third category can be represented by gigantic examples like Amazon Marketplace, Uber, Airbnb, Booking.com, Spotify. To say it in a nutshell, we are talking about marketplaces. You can see their products, knowledge, services, whatsoever. They are marketplaces. We call them transactional platform. They do share something with the innovation platforms that Tomaso was describing. They do have two customers, exactly as innovation platforms, and they do have this network effect that is coming from the presence of two customers. What do I mean? Let's look at, uh, at Amazon, the marketplace, not the company. The company is too complicated. Just focus on, on the marketplace. We are clearly users. I think all of us, okay? It's easy to, 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 put, to, to be in those shoes. And we receive a service that is managed by the company. So there is the website, there is the delivery system, the logistics, the comparison, the algorithm, and blah, blah, blah. And then there is something that is not created by Amazon but is actually created by another set of customers, which are the merchants. You know, if we stay in the shoes of the end users, the one selling microphones on, on, on Amazon looks like a supplier to us, okay? But if we put ourselves in Amazon's shoes, well, the microphone seller is definitely a customer. It's actually buying the service of worldwide distribution of logistic management of uh, whatsoever. Again, the algorithm, the reviews and blah, blah, blah. And the cool thing here is that these two types of customers, sellers and buyers, basically, have an intrinsic relation, a cross relation based on the value, regarding the value that they both perceive. So the more people are buying on Amazon, the more it's going to be valuable for you, microphone producer, to sell your microphones there. Vice versa, the more merchants sell their objects on Amazon, the more it's going to be valuable for you to use to actually use Amazon and not whatever other marketplace. So 
these mechanisms, so having two customers and having this cross-site network externalities was true, were, both characteristics were true also in innovation platform. But there is one gigantic difference. For the second side, for the merchant, you are not developing something on top of the platform. I'm not developing the microphones on top of Amazon. I'm leveraging Amazon to transact something that I would have anyhow. And that's true for Airbnb. I already have my rooms and I put it there. I already have my free time and my car and I put them on Uber and, and so on and so forth. So they are marketplaces. This means that the technological base is, is an enabler for the transaction and not for an actual innovation, but it's the business model that tends to be an innovation or, or at least it was super innovative over the last uh, 15 years, thanks to smartphones and connectivity and those, uh, and, those, and those technologies. This is probably the typology of platform that make the idea of platform so popular yeah. over the last 15 years. The big names, Uber and Airbnb, that are usually the flagship cases, are in this category. It's nothing new. Credit cards are transactional platforms. The market, like, the place, the market, it's a transactional platform. Network externalities are smaller, but they exist as well. But uh, over the last 15 years, thanks to digital technologies, they got definitely a different relevance. The issue is that uh, having so many big cases like iOS, Android, Uber, Airbnb, and so on and so forth, being generally labeled as platform, made, uh, created a situation in which everything that is digital is called a platform, even though they are very different to manage. You know, managing an operating system and managing Airbnb, it's not the same thing. It has different implications to launch them, to let them grow, to design them. So it's important to perceive that there are different characteristics under this uh, this similar initial label. And this is actually something I really liked reading in the book. This It was quite enlightening to see all these different typo typologies of platforms. I thought that was very, really clarified things for me. And and so there's a so yeah. then we'll have finished the introduction <laughs> introductory part on so uh, the last type of platform. Yeah, I mean the last type is and I, it's it's quite difficult. So it took us uh, some time in order to understand it to complete understand in what it is different from from other platforms. And I mean, let, let me let me do one thing before because we've been talking a lot about about Apple, and uh, Apple is is a great company. And typically, we need to be very precise when we talk about platforms because we make the mistake of talking about companies as platforms. But in reality, this can only be done for those companies which are providing a single service. So you take, you know, a company like uh, Uber at the beginning, at least, uh, they were just providing that service. So they were a transaction platform, you know, making it possible for drivers and, 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 and travelers to, to, to meet and so on. But now that we got the, the right words, we can look at Apple, for example. So Apple is, is a great company because they can use different typologies of platforms altogether. So they are great 
because they create a, a product platform. So it's not true that every single time they do an iPhone, they start from scratch. So <laughs> there is a base and they build on top of it. And then every once in a while, they change it. But they actually use some kind of product platform approach. But on the other side, they are also leveraging a sort of innovation platform. And the innovation platform is iOS. So iOS, the operating system, is that thing that is enabling somebody else to build on top of my product. So if uh, I'm Waze and I want to create a navigation system, I do not have as it, I don't have to create, uh, you know, the box to buy the, uh, the screen uh, to put the, the speakers uh, and the GPS antenna because everything is already provided by the product. And the way to leverage it to build on top of it is uh, the operating system. So they have got a product platform strategy. They have got uh, an innovation platform strategy, and then they have got uh, the App Store. And the App Store is exactly the place in which you've got somebody selling something else to somebody else. And you've got so, so many more people with an iPhone means that it's more interesting for me to develop an app. And, uh, you know, more apps uh, on the App Store makes it more interesting for me to buy, to buy an iPhone. So you see that the three different typologies, product, innovation, transaction, uh, they are all managed by the same company in different ways. So it's not the same thing. You've got the product. You got the operating system. You got the the store, and in a certain way, you know, getting to getting to the, the this is bringing us to the last typology, which is still a platform with different customers, but it's a different kind of. So think about Google, for example. And when I again, Google is a company, no sense. So let's talk about the single service, the 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 search engine. So the search engine uh, actually is is not like Uber. It's not like Airbnb. It's not when you use it, you are not actually having any transaction with somebody else on the other side. It's me going on Google and receiving a service. So basically, if we only look at this part of a game, Google developing an algorithm and giving me a service, this is not a platform. This is a digital service. So they do the work and they give it to me. Of course, they can set the price. And the price could be zero, <laughs> like it is, or it could be even more. So at a certain point, they might say, okay, you want to use the search engine, you need to pay, you know, certain amount of, you need to pay a subscription. So this is transaction between me and Google, not between me and somebody else. So if I look at the search engine in this way, it's just a simple digital service. On the other side, we need to notice that there is another client anyway, that is advertisers. So what is the idea? On the same time, Google is enabling another transaction between Google itself and the advertisers. And uh, so, again, we might consider this as a company providing two different services. So it's not a platform. And this would be wrong because uh, the interesting thing is that the two customers uh, are correlated. So there is a sort of correlation between them, meaning that you cannot ask the advertisers to pay money to show something if you don't have billions of users. So those uh, cross-aside nectar externalities that Daniel was talking about are still in place, but they are a little bit different. So we are not bi-directional. So it is not true that me, as a final user of a search engine, I'm interested in how many people are buying advertising spaces. I really don't care about it. I only want my service. Let's see it. Uh, on the other side, uh, it's absolutely the opposite. For the advertisers, knowing how many people you've got using the search engine, uh, that is crucial 
because that means that you've got 10 or 100 or 1 million or billions of eyeballs looking at your advertising. And this is providing the final, the value of the space that is provided by, by Google. So is this a platform as, as Airbnb? Yes. I mean, in, according to the definition to have a platform, you need to have at least two different customers somehow correlated between them with some form of network externalities in between. In, in one case, Airbnb, you got two customers, transactions, and bi-directional uh, network externalities. In the case of Google, you got two customers and unidirectional network externalities. So this is a different kind of, we call them orthogonal platforms, just to, to remark that they are not enabling any transaction in between the two customers. Okay, good. Sorry, you know, go on. No, I just wanted to, to say, you know, it seems like we are, we are kind of playing with, with giving definitions to various digital services and, and, and various things that are around us, which is true in the end. <laughs> but, <laughs> but there is a purpose in, uh, in, uh, in doing this because we cannot label in the same way the search, en the search engine of Google, Uber, and uh, iOS just because they are digital. Yeah, they are digital, but they do have extremely different implications in how value is created, how value is captured, and especially how they can be launched, how can they be managed, how they can grow. And this is what we are trying to do with, with platform thinking. So seeing the differences between all these typologies of, of platforms that, as Tommaso was saying, can even be mixed, getting to something hybrid. And we believe that knowing the differences between all these things can actually help companies. And let me stress this a lot. Whoever they are, being a platform, not being a platform, being a transactional platform, an orthogonal platform, a digital service, whatsoever, to foster innovation through platform to, through platforms models. And that's what we call platform thinking. So once you have all these pieces of the puzzle, you can actually use them to foster innovation where, wherever you are. That's the bet behind the book. At the beginning, it's really puzzling with all these definitions, but we then, we then really want to use them as, as actual tools to foster innovation. I, I thought it was super helpful. So I definitely saw value in it when I was reading so I have a bit of a maybe a side question as you were talking. I was thinking about this. That So you mentioned Google is, I don't ex remember exactly the terminology used, but it's a one-sided platform. It's, well, one-sided transaction. <laughs> well, we normally call it orthogonal. Or no, so orthogonal, yes. Yeah. It, it yes, but I, I mean... One-sided and then it become orthogonal. So you start as exactly. a so you have service. A one, yeah. So you have, you have just a simple service. Let's say it's not a, a platform. It's just an exchange of services. And they kind of have an awful word for this platformized there. So, so my question is, can any, any simple transactional product or service be platformized in your opinion in this way? Okay. So uh, this is, this is a, an interesting one. Basically, it is possible. So, but, but I would like to be precise on this. Uh, we do not imagine that everything in the future will be platform-based. 
what we imagine is that in a certain way, these companies uh, showed us that uh, it is possible to create value in a different way. So the typical approach to value creation of the companies of corporations is the so-called linear value chain. So you buy stuff, you buy products, you buy services, you put things together, you, you mix somehow in some kind of magic and called operations, and you create uh, something to be sold. So basically, if we consider the large majority of companies out there, they are open on two sides. On the one side, they buy. On the one side, on the other side, they sell. Companies like the ones that we named Airbnb, but also Uber, they got customers on both sides. So this is a different approach to value creation. Now, going to your point, uh, is there any kind of limitations? Is, there, is this applicable only to, I don't know, digital products or digital services or startups and so on. I mean, for quite a long time, that was somehow the idea because we saw that uh, who was leveraging this approach, basically digital startups uh, in the Silicon Valley. In some cases, you could you know, remove the third one. So you got Spotify in Sweden, but it was still digital startups. And, and so we've been thinking a lot about it. And we came to this conclusion. Uh, of course, if you are a startup, uh, you might want to use this way of creating value because basically you do, you do not have any other option. So you're a small company and you want to compete uh, in the hotelery industry. Uh, you cannot really buy buildings uh, and and uh, and uh, the concierge and all the furniture and and the, the coffee machine and and the, you cannot really do that kind of investment before you start. So you need to have something provided by somebody else. So in a certain way, startups in many cases have not a choice. But the question is, uh, if a platform approach is okay for for startups, does that mean? Also, the opposite is true. So it cannot be used by existing companies. And basically, no. So who say that? So uh, what we understood is that this way of creating value can, of course, be used by any companies, even by those companies that are established and already existing. And that's great because we even understood more that it's easier for them to create a platform because they don't start from scratch. They already got... Uh, Power, investments, connections, knowledge, customers, brand. So there are many things that can actually make it simpler to them to create a platform. So can everything be managed in this way? Probably no. But we think that at least the question should be asked by every, by every company out there. So is there any way for me to leverage this different way of doing things? Can I, can I jump in here? I think this is a really interesting question because now you probably said something that I wouldn't have expected about platforms because for, at least in my mind, previous, like five minutes before, I thought, well, building a platform is, is super challenging. So what I've seen, at least in my experience as a consultant, is that there's a lot of companies that try to do or, build, or they want to build a platform at least, uh, or the CEO said they should or something like that. And it's very hard to get from zero to platform. Like, I think there's a lot of steps there in between, but somehow you're saying now that for some startups, it might be even the best choice to go you, because of constraints that you have. But I, I, maybe this is just my experience and I'm, I'm biased in this way, but I feel like it's, for established companies, it's very hard kind of to go from zero to platform. Yes, they might 
platformize or whatever the word is a part of their business My by word. building a new <laughs> oh sorry <laughs> yeah I, that's a really, I mean the question probably on a lot of people's mind is like I, I, they want to build a platform but but probably then struggle with with really because it's it's super hard so, like, so <laughs> how do you yeah well you know the first time one of the very first time we presented platform thinking just going a bit back in the history of how we got here for five six seven years we studied platforms so we've been studying Airbnb, uber spotify and the usual suspects we are in a in a research group under the label of innovation management so that was kind of a, a side project studying the studying those companies that mainly were studied from a strategy perspective like business model perspective we are used to deal with big established companies that were successful in doing something and need to find new ways of doing what they were doing or something new so <laughs> we, we we used to deal with incumbents more than uh, with startups that's our dna and that's where platform thinking came off so what if we can learn from those startups and those new business models for established companies and one of the first critiques we got was well but if i'm super good in doing microphones why should i be doing a platform we still need people doing microphones and well our point is go on doing microphones it's absolutely fine if you go on doing microphones our point is is slightly different Porter, 40 years ago, created a model that used to be perfect. The linear value chain. There are supporting activities, there are primary activities. We can see how a firm works, how it creates value, built on top of it. That model, it's still here with us. It's still fighting. It's still valuable. It will stay here with us. But now we have another model next to it there is another way to create value that it's not that linear but it's definitely more complicated it can be transactional it can be innovation it can be orthogonal whatsoever but the point is that value creation can be more complex and our point is please be aware of the fact that there is an alternative and you know I cannot say one is better than the other. I don't have this answer. We don't have anyhow this answer. And it's not easier to do a platform or to do a linear value chain. They are simply two different problems. You know, to build up Airbnb, it's fucking difficult. It's not difficult. It took <laughs> years to them to actually build Airbnb. But if you put next to it, building the first Hilton, well, it's another challenge. I need another type of investment. I need a another type of investment right now to build the entire hotel now and then start getting revenues. The early version of Airbnb, it's definitely cheaper. And then you test it, you get more money and, and, and the investment can, can, go, can, can go on. You move the challenge. The challenge is actually related to network effects, to bringing the different customers on board. And, you know, if you go to the established company, it's again the same thing. You have different type of problems if you want to build up a platform. Just let me say, probably, if you are an established to set up a platform, 
strategically speaking, you have less barriers than being a startup because you already have a brand, you already have customers, you already have resources, you already have money usually, but can be difficult uh, for organizational change, for people, for whatsoever. Just let me close with one remark. When you say it's very difficult to go from zero to 100 with a platform, I agree with you, but I would put there two elements. One, usually we talk about platform initiatives. So it's not really, uh, we shouldn't be thinking about Ford moving from being a car manufacturer to a platform 100%. They can probably have some platform initiative. Second, too often when we talk about platforms with, with companies, and this is something we see in the observatory and, and when we, we work with companies, the first thing they think is an IT platform. But very, very, very often we deal with companies that tell us, you know what, I bought this amazing, gigantic, incredible IT platform, but I don't know how to, how to use it, what to do with it, how to create value with it. So we see the technology coming first without a real strategy behind. Our purpose with platform thinking is to put it the other way around. We don't want to platformize everything. We want to create awareness on the fact that there is an alternative and this, and that alternative can be interesting sometimes. But we should start from the reason why you want a platform, what you want to achieve with that. And then at that point, the platformization may not be that difficult as it seems from, from mm. the beginning. I mean, every, every business is difficult at the end. I mean, but every business has its own specific challenges. And to that effect, you there's a quote in, in the book, you say, the fact that platforms, quote, unquote, do nothing and just matchmake is a false myth. So talking to these challenges, what, what, what do you mean by this? Why is matchmaking not what a platform, well, well, these specific kinds of platforms is not what they do or not only what they do. And this is your real. <laughs> Very briefly, this is something coming from our early days on, on platforms. If we go back 10 years, 2014, 2015, it was very easy every morning to wake up, open any business magazine we can think about and finding a news that was presenting the new Uber or the new Airbnb for something. You were talking about platformization 10 years ago, everyone was talking about Uberization. Mm -hmm. And there was this, you know, false myth saying, uh, I've got someone looking for something. I've got, I've got someone with that something they need. It's done rich. <laughs> I'm rich. <laughs> I, I have the new Uber, you know, the idea is easy to get. The, the actual result, it's not. Because the, sim the simple part, the simplicity that we perceive as user is actually the value that they are creating. The platform is greater, the simpler it is to us, the transaction, the matching and whatsoever, but it's not easy at all. So... There is this, uh, this idea that they just matchmake. So, you know, in an hotel, you actually clean the room, you design the room, you sell the room, 
and and so on and so forth. You provide all the additional services. In Airbnb, that's not. So that's an easy job. It's just a website with rooms on. Absolutely not. Airbnb spent years in designing trust-based mechanism to actually allow the interaction between the sites. Technologically speaking, they've done incredible things on data to actually facilitate that matchmaking. They built a community that is truly amazing. You know, go back 10 years, 15 years, and think about yourself. Now, not individually, but generally speaking, going in a stranger's house to sleep. It was not obvious. We book hotels, so we don't book private houses. So they had, to, they had to build a community that was coherent with that and to create mechanisms to have people coming back and back and back to foster these externalities. All these works, all, all this job is behind the scene, but is extremely precious and valuable. And the vast majority of platforms, now we are talking about startups, not platform initiatives. The vast majority of startups based on a transactional platform mechanism, the extreme vast majority, they fail in a couple of years because they do believe that everything is the matchmaking and that's easy, but it's not. That's why we, we, stro we are strongly against this idea of mm. it's just matchmaking. Well, I think in in the book, I, I thought this was a really interesting, you actually gave a, another example. And what I thought was very interesting was that it, it went even beyond just making the matchmaking easier because he, the trust, of course, is somehow part of enhancing the matchmaking. I don't remember precisely the details of the example you gave, but it was something to the effect that even some platforms will you know, create an additional service for one of the legs of the one of the, the their their clients to service them so that they will want to come on the platform. I think it was something to do with a restaurant and yeah. And and I thought so this was very interesting because I, I never had thought of of that. Yeah. You know, there's actually a case coming from another brilliant book that is Matchmakers that uh, we recall in our book, and the case is open table. The point is, when we are in the linear world, there are thousands of books talking about uh, customer centricity, okay? With platforms, customer centricity, it's trivial. I cannot say it's wrong, but it's trivial. Because if in creating OpenTable, OpenTable is the, the one of the services uh, that allow you to book a table in a restaurant and from the restaurant perspective it should allow you in a better you know filling in of your tables so ideally in a in a in a linear perspective uh, the customer you should be obsessed with is the end user okay is the one that would like to eat and that's fine but we cannot absolutely treat the restaurant as a supplier the restaurant is a customer and you must be obsessed by them as well. So if you want to have a customer obsession, customer centricity or whatsoever you want to call it, dealing with platforms, you had to add at least one S. It's customer's <laughs> obsession. Mm. And the, the example there is that they actually propose open table to restaurants 
by developing a table management system. So actually having a specific value proposition for them as well. And that's crucial for all the typologies of platform that we mentioned, if not the product platforms, for all the others. When you have multiple sites, you have multiple value proposition, you have multiple customers, you must take care yeah. of. Yeah. I, can I just, I think this is really a, a nice point because maybe this is wrong from the outside, but I think like there's some some industries that understand themselves still as traditional matchmaking. So I'm thinking about like stuff like advertisers, newspapers, and then there's resellers somewhere in between that sell advertising space. And I think they are in a lot of trouble at the moment. And I think that's part of the reason is probably because they think they're matchmakers while they're while not providing value to, to both of the customers. So I think that's a very important point. Like, I mean, so, yeah, sorry. sorry. This is great because there is one thing that we understood along the way at a certain point, and it is that, uh, you know, it's true. You are an established company. You can think about platformizing yourself. So we use it. We, we like it. We will use it. But basically, we were we were very surprised by the fact that there are companies which are already platforms, but they don't know it. So think about yeah. an airport. An airport is typically a platform. So yeah. basically, you've got a set of customers, travelers, and you provide services to them. And if you're good in doing it, you've got many travelers. And if you've got many travelers, you've got you know, the possibility of renting the space to shops or to restaurants. And actually, you make money with those people and not with the other ones. So they are what we call a natural platform. And it's the same for malls, uh, for shopping malls, for example. Or even we understood it's for, for the pub publishing system. It's, it's the same. And, but they do not understand it. So when yeah. we publish the book... Uh, we were considered as, as providers. We are not providers. We are your customers, uh, and and <laughs> you need to understand that. So we 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 got we having this discussion. <laughs> I can't imagine. You that, need you to know, understand it. And, academic and context, relationship, oh, yeah, with publisher. Because the, in many cases, uh, the publisher is giving you money up front. So they think that you are a provider because they are paying you. No, yeah, they're not paying you. They are anticipating part of the money that we will they will owe you because it's a percentage of a sales. Yeah. So treat me as a customer. I don't want to be treated as 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 a provider. So Daniel before said something that is great. I think it's super interesting from the organizational point of view because we are focusing a lot on uh, uh, how we deal with. What is outside? So we got two customers. Uh, we need to have two customer centricities and so on. But one of the biggest challenges, especially for established companies, is from the inside. So you need to convince your people that they do not deal with providers. They deal with customers. And you cannot treat a, a, a customer as a provider. So you need, you, need to, you need to understand what I want. You need to, you need to, to take care of me. So you need to love me. So it's not, the, the relationship is completely different. This is what these people do. So Airbnb, they are great with a host. So if you've got any kind of problem in the house, they solve the problem for you. It's difficult for me to give my own house in the hand of somebody that I don't know. So I need to be reassured. And the first time that I got a problem because the TV set is not working anymore, I don't want to be involved into a never-ending discussion with uh, 
the, 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 the traveler, uh, it was me, it was not me, but I didn't even know there was a television. Yeah, but it's broken now. So, so let, yeah. I don't want to have it. So you need to understand that this is my need. You need to treat me as a customer. So you are right when you say that it's difficult to create a platform. You've got to create two services at least. And we know that the large majority of services, they fail. And in this case, both of them need to work because they are correlated. If one is working, the one the other one is not working, you fail. So it's it's twice as complicated because you need to be successful on two different services, on two different markets at the same time. That's super difficult. And then there is another point. You need to change the mind of your own people. And you know, convincing somebody working in purchasing that you need to treat somebody else as the way in which they speak. It's different. So the way in which they are rewarded, incentives uh, on the discount. So everything must change. So yeah, it is incredibly difficult to build the platform. We agree on it. That's the reason why we don't like this idea of just matchmaking. No, but they do, they do something that is kind of magic. So they're incredibly great thinkers. Mm-hmm. I, I noticed myself also in the, 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 the difference, the line between a supplier and a customer is is not so clearly defined as all that often when you're especially when you're not having a clear money transaction sometimes you're working together on a project and all this it's it's a very interesting uh, topic also which we'll not dive into now but it's definitely an interesting question i'm seeing we we we're getting towards the the end of the time i i had the the book has a lot of really interesting suggestions and strategies for overcoming what Jan was mentioning before, which you call what what you call the chicken and egg paradox. So how do you actually bring a platform uh, to a level where there's enough people on each side and where you can actually benefit from the the network effort effects? And so there's there's a lot of really interesting information in, in the book about that. So I encourage everyone to to go out and, and read it. I, I wanted for the time remaining to touch upon something else, which I thought was very interesting, was talking about pricing. You talk about pricing strategies and you, you say that traditional pricing strategies don't work. You can't think about pricing in the same way for, for platforms. It doesn't work. So I wonder if you could tell us a bit more about that. Well, do I go? Okay. Go. So, uh, yeah, this is uh, Eminem. This is the real, real beginning of when we started. So what we noticed was that we are getting accustomed to having things for free. So Google search engine is for free. Yeah. Yeah, Sometimes you got some, some advertising, but think about it. So you can use TikTok for free. You can use Instagram for free. You can use Facebook at once upon a time for free. You can do, you know, we get accustomed to it. uh, And that was the real, real beginning. So how is that possible? So people like Google, they are among the best engineers in the world. So why should they work free? Basically, they don't. (laughs) (laughs) Of course, they don't. So given that you've got a complex system of uh, more than one customer, you know, connected one with the other, you might understand, you might find yourself in a situation in which the way in which you've set the price is not on each relationship but it is at a global level. So if I'm Google and I really want to have something to sell to the advertisers, I need to have a lot of eyeballs. How do I get to the eyeballs if I ask you money for that? So I'm more than happy to give that to you for free uh, because basically somebody else is paying for that. 
Uh, so if you are if you're a platform-based company, you got at least two, but in many cases more than two different sets of customers somehow interconnected. And this is opening the the the, the space for a huge creativity about how to make the system work. It's not a single relationship. It's a system that is working in a different way. So at the end of the day, you got a bottom line. And the bottom line needs to be working. But that doesn't mean that everybody has got to pay for something. And this is the great thing. So in many cases, you find exactly the opposite. And uh, when I say that there is a lot of creativity, think, think about the fact that uh, so there are cases uh, in which... Uh, at a certain point, uh, uh, the, the 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 user is not even anymore used as a as, as a as a target for advertisers, but it can be thought as a creator of uh, of uh, of data and information. Somebody else might be interested in that data and information. There are hundreds of cases of this already. One of the first one that we analyzed many years ago was in Twitter. At that time, was still Twitter when they created the Twindex. So that index was, you know, used for the for the presidential campaign between Romney and and Obama. It's still there, but it was created at that time. So basically, it was sentiment analysis, you know. And so the basic idea was: I can give you Twitter for free if you are a user, because when you tweet, the tweet is mine, and when the tweet is mine, I can work on it. And, uh, you know, I can go to check how many times uh, the word Obama is tweeted. And I can see if there is a big, you know, a variance and if there is a peak on it. So, and I can connect it with uh, what Obama said. If Obama or Romney or, you know, Trump or whoever, if you say something and nobody is commenting on it, uh, probably that's not the, the, the best thing you want to talk about. So people really don't care about it. So I can give you the kind of information as well as I can give you the information about if people talk about it because they like it or people talk about it because they don't like it. And I can tell you that if you go in Texas, uh, you know, this is a hot topic that people like. But if you go to New York City, maybe this topic is it's better if you avoid it because, you know, they talk a lot about it, but in a negative way. So in this case, I'm creating a different way for, you know, pricing. I can give it to you for free because just using what I'm providing you you are giving me small amounts of data that uh, you know individually probably have got no value. But if you put all of them together and you anonymize it so it's perfectly legal, there is a lot of value into that data. Again, another way to do the pricing. So once you switch from a single relationship, I sell, you buy, to a multiple point relationship with different customers, the most important, the only important thing is the final bottom line. And this is enabling all kinds of uh, alternatives, possibilities. Uh, you can subsidize this. You can give that for free. Uh, you can have, you know, freemium. You can, have, you can have whatever. Because this is opening the the way for a lot of creativity in doing something that was pretty simple before, but it's not now. Hmm. There was a very interesting point about the the, the so that even if you wanted to price the service correctly it would be very difficult because of these network effects so you can't really do it on a cost basis or on a on a value basis and so you have to find these other strategies to actually make it work yeah you know that was the starting point of of, of the research field definitely years before we actually joined it so, 
the idea of two-sided markets back then, even before transactional platforms, was actually the difficulty or impossibility in certain cases to give value to something that depends by definition on its usage, in this case, of another type of, of customers. And so these mechanisms allow what Tommaso was saying, so the fact that someone is getting something for free, while on the others, you have to take a decision. Over the years, we kind of got used to that. So now it's pretty normal that these type of platforms either work with a subscription or they work with a, with a transaction fee, or they do work with hybrid mechanisms between something like that. In some cases, both customers actually pay. In Airbnb, we pay a transaction fee as users and the hosts yeah. pay a transaction fee. So the alternatives are, are a lot. What are the implications of this? And this is tremendously true for, for startups, but even for established companies. It's very difficult to assess the impact of this kind of investment or to foresee the return of these investments. ROI, NPV, all those mechanisms are very hardly usable here because a slight change in, in the adoption can have incredible impacts on the number. And the more it goes, the more they should go according to the value of extra, according to the direction of externalities. So the bigger it is, the bigger it will become. So this is definitely something uh, still relevant. What changed in the last two decades, I would say, is that now we know that. So we tend to price these services mainly for comparison with other platforms or comparable services rather than cost-based mechanisms or other types of more traditional pricing setting strategies. So I want to be mindful of your time. I, I did have a last a last question, but I wanted to give the opportunity to Jan or Scott if they wanted to chime in at, at this point. I just real quickly, as you're teaching this to new folks, what is the concept they find the most difficult to grasp with the with platforms? Uh, sorry, when teaching you mean? Yeah, when when you when the new audience, <laughs> what what do they find most difficult to grasp? Uh, well, let's see. I think that one of the one of the biggest problem we got is that when we start, uh, everybody is already an expert on platforms. So in many cases, <laughs> when we teach, when we talk with companies, when we talk with managers, so we deal with platform thinking and platform management. Oh, yes, we do a lot about it. So, oh, wait. <laughs> because in many cases, you've got a digital service, okay? which, which is okay. So it's, that is the problem that uh, Daniel was discussing before. There is this overusage of the word platform, uh, and once you've got a single word uh, with so many different meanings, uh, actually the word uh, is losing any meaning. So talking about platforms uh, is wrong itself. So we need to talk about this platform, you know, transactional platforms. We need to talk about the orthogonal platforms. We need to talk about the product platforms. Or we need to talk about you know, platforms as women's shoes because we understood that there is also you know, there are some shoes that are called platforms. So you need to specify what platform you're talking about. Otherwise, you're talking about something that can almost be used for everything. And everybody has got his own idea and they basically normally are not open to, uh, to uh, accept other ideas because they know it already. So what we do normally, we let people speak. So 
give it out. So tell me what is your platform, and then I will tell you what is my platform. If I if we start talking about platform, people just don't listen because they know it already. Mm. Makes sense. Yep. Yeah. And so in the book, there's also a lot of to your your question, a lot of you know the the when you get get down to it, the actual things you need to do, the strategies, the tactics you need to actually do to to make th these platforms work, I, I think there's lies quite a lot of the of the difficulty. And listeners can learn a lot more about this in in the book, platform thinking. And so on this, I I think we will end the the show. So thank you very much for for joining us, Danielle Trabucci and Tommaso. Buganza, maybe one last small question. If you had a billboard that you could write something on, what would be a little sentence that you would write on that billboard? Read the past, write the future. <laughs> we thought a lot about it, uh, and that's a bit, well, this is the subtitle of, of, uh, of the book, but this is very coherent with what people tell us when they come to a class of ours or they, re they, they read the book. Once you read platform thinking, it seems that you start seeing platforms everywhere. And that was the, the metaphor we use for the book. The first half of the, of the book is based on reading. So all these definitions of all these strategies are useful in our opinion to understand the complexity that is around us. But we don't want to, we didn't want to stop there. We want to make these things applicable and usable. And the second part is, is writing. You were mentioning uh, templates. So the second part of the book is full of templates to actually apply platform thinking in established firms. They live on Miro. They live in MOOCs on Coursera. So it's, it's a multi-platform book. Let's, let's, let's put it like that. And, uh, and the second part is write the future. We really want that platform thinking is not just something, uh, to understand what is around us, but also to leverage it, to foster innovation. It's not a strategy book, it's an innovation book for us. Great. So where can listen, listeners follow follow you or find find out more about you? Where should they contact you? Well, platformthinking.eu is uh, the book's website, but also the, the, the place where there is everything we do on platforms. And we're quite active on LinkedIn. So uh, definitely on LinkedIn, uh, you, you, you can follow us and, and, uh, and join the conversation and get in touch if you want. Okay, well, thank you very much. And that concludes today's Product Quest podcast. So please send any comments or ideas for future shows to productquestpodcast at gmail.com. See you next time.